You're listening to J-Air Radio, transmitting on 88FM and streaming live from our website, j-air.com.au. My name is David Schulberg and this is the Israel Connection, during which I explore our close links with Israel and delve into stories behind the news. My guest today is Avi Malamud, a fourth-generation Arabic-speaking Jerusalemite Jew, former intelligence official, senior advisor on Arab affairs and Middle East expert. Avi provides apolitical, non-partisan education about the Middle East to a wide variety of Jewish and non-Jewish audiences, from high school students to community and global leaders across the political and ideological spectrum. His newest book, Inside the Middle East, Entering a New Era, has received high acclaim across the Arab world. The Seamline, a five-part documentary series about Jerusalem, is his newest project. So I have with me Avi Malamud, who is an Arab-speaking Middle East expert, who dives deep into the issues that perplex the Middle East. Welcome back to the Israel Connection, Avi. Hello, David. Thank you for having me. It's always wonderful. So you're touring the US at the moment, Avi. You do this frequently. So what are you aiming to achieve on your trip in the US? Well, David, um, all of my work, you know, the educational work I'm doing, whether in the U.S. or other places in the world, in Israel as well, my major objective is to educate, to really offer people a better understanding of the complex region that is called the Middle East and a better understanding of how this region actually impacts the uh, current and maybe the future uh, geostrategic, geopolitical horizons of the state of Israel. I'm always saying that my job is not to echo another narrative or not to say to people something that they can read or hear in the media, but my job is actually to trying to bring the additional perspectives that quite often are not very known uh, to the audience in the West. So that's a, a good reason for me to have you on uh, the show, Avi, so that you can provide uh, something from for my audience today that they won't be able to get uh, from other sources When you describe what you do and you designate yourself as an expert on current affairs in the Arab and Muslim world and their impact on Israel and the Middle East, you indicate that what you do is apolitical. What does that say about your approach to dealing with the multitude of issues that arise pertaining to Israel? Well, David, that's a very accurate observation. My work is definitely, uh, as you said, apolitical, nonpartisan. When I'm addressing issues that relate to the Middle East, obviously those issues, in essence, many of those issues are political, but what I'm doing is I'm providing a database, I'm providing context, I'm providing a wider perspectives and a, a wider dimensions that help the audience to have a different perspective of the same topic. And so by doing that, actually, I'm kind of like distancing myself from any kind of like political affiliation. I'm, a, I'm always saying to people, I'm not a spokesperson. I'm neither an Israeli spokesperson nor a Palestinian spokesperson. I'm a professional uh, Middle East expert, and I'm uh, really trying to the best of my ability and objectivity to provide as much as possible professional multi-layer picture of the Middle East. And I take myself, I take a pride saying that I think that I'm doing a good job in that. So when it comes to an issue, for example, like uh, these judicial reforms that uh, are confounding Israel at the moment with uh, demonstrations every single week, this is an issue that you don't touch, I I would assume. Well, David, actually I do touch that issue. Um, In fact, in many of my meetings, uh, particularly with American Jewry, but not only, 
Uh, that issue is very often come, and obviously it's, uh, you know, it's in the heart of the discussion today among American Jewry, but not only in the States, uh, Jews in uh, other places in the world as well. I just had uh, not so long ago the honor to brief one of the uh, missions from Australia visiting Israel, and though we talked about the Middle East, that issue also, of course, came up. And so I also address that issue. Again, I'm, I'm addressing that issue with the best of my ability, trying to distance myself as much as possible from political affiliation and really trying to provide my audience, um, I hope so, better understanding of the depth and width of that uh, crisis that uh, Israel is going on right now. And in fact, uh, David, um, the whole issue of the judicial reform is, is just only the surface. I mean, we are looking at something that goes wider and deeper in context of the, the scale, the magnitude of the challenge or the crisis that Israel is going right now. And so I think it's important to, to understand it. And in my presentation, when I'm uh, asked to talk specifically about the issue of the crisis in Israel, I'm obviously, as I said before, I'm providing context, I'm providing data, I'm providing some sort of like an historical framing so people would have a better understanding of the, of the depth, the width, the dimensions of that crisis. Yeah, because the issue is so foremost in uh, people's minds, it's one that you can't skirt around. There's, there's a growing ambivalence within the Jewish community in America towards Israel, and this issue we've just mentioned is, is one of the ones that is uh, bothering Jews in America is this something you actually see in your travels? And do you see this as an objective to dispel notions that the Israeli government is, is off track? Well, David, definitely, as I said before, you are very right. It's very much present. Uh, it, it is, again, as I said, it's not only American Jewry, it's also Jews in other places in the world who are emotionally and politically and intellectually are very much engaged. But um, one can understand it, you know, uh, Israel is, is such a central place for the people, American Jews and Jews around the world. And obviously people uh, are very much concerned. People are disturbed. People are, they want to understand better what, what is going on there in Israel. I have the opportunity, I should say, uh, to get together with these people and at least try to explain to them the, the white uh, perspective of what's going on. I don't know to say if necessarily it's to calm their concern or but basically to provide them a better knowledge, a better understanding, so they could, based upon that, hopefully could draw their own decision and own, and own insights. And one of the things that I'm doing, I'm, I'm not criticizing or, or praising any government. I'm trying to refer to the uh, complex crisis, uh, really trying to reflect the ideological, the, 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 the deep roots that actually feeds that, that crisis. As I said before, I'm not a spokesperson. I'm not coming from any political party. I'm, I have no role in any political party or any kind of like governmental position. I take credit because um, I have a lot of credit because I'm applying the very same approach I'm applying when I'm talking about the Middle East. Database, contextualizing the issues, trying as much as possible to screen the many layers that the picture is made of and based upon my wide experience those meetings are very 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 meaningful for people whether i'm talking about the middle east or if i'm talking about the crisis in israel they are very meaningful because people are walking away and saying look we are very thankful because you don't bring us yet another narrative you actually provide us some 
wider perspective that now helps us to see the picture from different perspective and to come to our own conclusions or our own insights, which is exactly what I'm trying to do in, in, my, in, in all parts of my work, whether it's writing, lecturing, briefing, and so on and so on. So you've done these tours of the US, these speaking tours, uh, a number of times. What I was uh, asking you then was, do you uh, feel any kind of a different attitude that's uh, pervading the Jewish community in America now towards Israel? Well, David, I must say that um, it has been some kind of like long time going on, some very sensitive uh, relationship and uh, disputes or controversial issues in the context of the relationship between American Jews and Israel prior to the story of the uh, political crisis. We are all familiar with that. We are familiar with the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict that fuel uh, lots of uh, sensitivities and controversial discussion within American Jewry. The issue of a religious denomination, I mean, you've got reforms and you've got ultra-conservative and, and these are other issues that are also fueling an ongoing and increasing, I would say, controversial environment. Actually, it's not a secret that uh, American Jewry are struggling for quite a long time now with an inner uh, challenge because the discussion about Israel within American Jewry became very complex, very sensitive, uh, to the point many times American Jewry simply prefer not to touch it or basically try to avoid as much as possible uh, touching the issues because it results in or it fuels very heated emotional discussion within American Jewry. So it's not a secret. It's interesting because one of the amazing things that I learned time and again with in my many tools, the many tools that I did, particularly to the United States and my, my close encounters with American Jewry, is that they found the meetings with me very significant because the meeting with me when I'm coming and I'm not echoing political narratives, I'm not getting into political debates, but I am really providing them wider perspectives and I bring additional information and knowledge that they are not necessarily exposed to. The significance of that is that, and time and again, I'm, I'm hearing from American Jewry, just recently had a wonderful series of events in one of the biggest uh, community centers of American Jewry in Pittsburgh. The executive director told me in the end of this program, he said, you know, you are a community building. You are, what you're doing, meaning me, in my approach, I'm enabling American Jewry to have discussion about Israel, have discussion about the controversial issues, but have a fruitful discussions because my work, the way I present the issue, the way I address the issue, creates an environment that enables people that are coming from the different political perspectives, left to right, to sit together around the table and to have a discussion and to have a fruitful discussion. That discussion may not necessarily result in consensus or agreement, that discussions may not necessarily solve the dispute, but that discussion enables people to talk one with to the other and to be able to create a more, I would say, wide, cohesive perspectives that basically en enables different perspectives to live at the same space. And this is, this is very significant, particularly when we are talking at times where many issues, unfortunately, became, become very quickly 
uh, emotionally charged, intellectually charged, uh, fueling a lot of tensions. So I would say this is one of the major significant contribution of my work and based upon my many, many meetings with American Jewry as, as well as other missions and other Jews um, uh, audience in the world. You've produced a docu-series called The Seam Line, which is about Jerusalem, and this is a new uh, tool in your toolbox, I, I, I guess. Now, let me say that the Seam Line is a unique opportunity to explore the conflict in and over Jerusalem through your eyes, you being a fourth-generation Arabic-speaking Jerusalemite Jew and Middle East expert who was the advisor on Arab affairs during the most violent and chaotic episodes in the history of Jerusalem, the Intifada. Now, we meet your Arab and Jewish friends. We gain unique insights and uncover perspectives really explored by Western media. Tell me... What drove you to produce this series, which encompasses five episodes exploring different aspects of Jerusalem? Well, David, you know, it's a, it's a great question because like many other things that happen, sometimes it's all started randomly, <laughs> almost speaking. There is an Israeli-based streaming platform called EZ uh, that was established by some uh, nice guys and from Israel and abroad. We had once a meeting which was nothing to do with me. There was some sort of a meeting and I was attending this meeting and all of a sudden, one of the founders of Easy started to ask me about what I'm doing and he was intrigued and he said, at some point he said, look, he said, you, you have something which is very, very unique and interesting and I think that this is something that is worthwhile turning into a TV series. So I was like, of course, I said like, um, okay, I said, <laughs> I, I'm in, what, what, what does it take? <laughs> a year and a half later, um, after having some significant financial investment and very challenging, yet very intriguing and fulfilling process, we found ourselves with, a, I take the pride to say, an outstanding, very high quality series uh, docu-series, as you say, the Seamline. We launched formally the Seamline in uh, May, just recently, in, during my uh, lecture tour in the States, which was in May. I'm currently again in the States because based upon the enormous success of the first screenings of the uh, series in May, I'm actually now back in the States for another screening tour, and my schedule is very packed. The series was very, very warmly welcomed because of the content, because of the unique information and perspectives that are totally not unknown for the audience in the world, because the very high uh, level of the production, and because the messages and the perspective that I provide through that series, the five, chapter, five chapters of the series, audience is very warmly embracing and welcoming the, the series. And again, though it talks about one of the most, if not maybe the most volatile place on this planet, you know, Jerusalem. And though it talks about the power struggle over and in Jerusalem, yet again, we never ever heard from anyone who watched the series something like, oh, that is biased or that is one-sided. We didn't hear that because it is not. Because the series really provides very uh, perspectives, Jewish, Arab, that are not known to the audience in the world. So in that sense, uh, we take a lot of pride of this series, of this docu-series. And actually, our hope is to that as much as possible, people ar around the world will watch the, the series. And actually, 
they can watch it for free. You just you can go into Easy I Z Z Y uh, website, log in, just you know, log your uh, email, have passport, and you could watch the series. It's a five chapter series. The series uh, everything is in English. The discussions that I have in the series with some of my guests, either Arabs or Jews, since as you mentioned before, I'm both fluent in Arabic and Hebrew as well. I have some of the discussions with them in Arabic and Hebrew, but everything is translated to English. There are English subtitles. And just a reminder for people, when you start watching, there is a note that you have to activate the the, um, the subtitles. The translation, the subtitles, so because people sometimes, you know, it was interesting because people call me and say, they said, it was so frustrating. They said, we were watching <laughs> that. It was amazing. And then there was part you were talking in Arabic or part that you are talking in Hebrew, but we didn't know what you were saying. And I said, well, we told you that you have to activate the <laughs> the subtitles in the beginning of the watching, so it's important to emphasize that. It's a great, great, significant, important docu-series for anyone who really wants to understand the ins and outs of the story of the power struggle over Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. And I really, really recommend people in around the world to watch it. Well, I recommend it too. I've just finished uh, watching it. The five episodes are only roughly about half an hour each in length. Before I uh, go explore with you now the docu-series, I'm going to just play the uh, the introduction that you have in each uh, of the episodes, which is a really good uh, depiction of what uh, you're on about with the series. From 1948 to 1967, Jerusalem was physically divided. The barrier dividing the city into east and west was known as the Sim Line. That line does not exist anymore. However, in this series, we will learn that Jerusalem has many Sim Lines. Some are visible, others are invisible. My name is Avi Melam. I'm an Israeli Jew. I was born and raised in Jerusalem. At the age of 29, in my role as the deputy and then advisor on Arab affairs to two mayors of Jerusalem, I found myself at the forefront during one of the most complex and violent chapters in the history of Jerusalem, the Intifada. My mission was to restore trust between the Arab residents of Jerusalem and the authorities. It was a unique opportunity to act in a mission of hope in times of despair in a city that is part of me, and I am part of it. I'm speaking with uh, Middle East expert Avi Malamud about his five-part docu-series about Jerusalem called The Seam Line. So can you please take us through uh, the five episodes of the docu-series, Avi, and give us uh, a little bit of a, a picture of what is the focus of each episode? Yes, definitely, David. So as a, as a framing, I would say that the series actually deals with the issue of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict over Jerusalem and in Jerusalem. And the uniqueness of the series is that it's based upon my personal involvement in my position, as you mentioned back then in the 90s as a, a deputy and then senior advisor on Arab affairs to the legendary mayor, Teddy Kolek, and then his successor who became prime minister, Ehud Olmert. And as you said, those were very rough years in the history of Jerusalem at the 90s, the Intifada and, and, and so on. And the purpose of this series is actually to present the story of the conflict over and in Jerusalem 
each chapter is presenting a different angle of that story. The first chapter, the introductionary chapter, is basically present to the viewer in a very dynamic, in a very um, up-to-now pace, the, the geopolitical fabric of the city, meaning we are looking at the story of the city or the milestones of the city of Jerusalem since 1948 until now, basically exploring together through use of drone footages, satellites, maps. We are exploring how the city was basically developing since 1948. We talk about the population of the city. We talk about the Jews in the city, the Arab communities. We show how the communities are actually rubbing shoulders. And basically, in the end of this chapter, we share with the viewer some very unique and interesting, I would say almost secret, about the uniqueness of Jerusalem from a geostrategic perspective. And we are leading to that point through something like 15 or 16 minutes in the first uh, chapter. And by the end of this chapter, when we kind of like zoom out and provide the comprehensive picture of Jerusalem, the viewer finds some very interesting, I would even say astonishing fact about the geostrategic landscape of Jerusalem. Obviously, I will not share it through our interview. I will leave it as a, as a teaser, but it's very significant. So this is the first chapter. The second chapter deals with the issue of one of the interesting things about situation of conflict is that and particularly in Jerusalem, and I experienced that in my position, is that the sides to the conflict are recruiting to the conflict issues that by essence or in essence are totally trivial. They have nothing to do with the conflict per se, but just the same, because sometimes such a conflict is a zero-sum game, the sides to the conflict, and I emphasize the sides, not only one side, sides to the conflict are recruiting or channeling or funneling issues or topics or places that in essence have nothing to do with the conflict, but they are recruiting them into the conflict. And the meaning of that is that you are looking actually at a situation where the potential of burst of violence or tension, that potential is enormously increasing because of that. And in that chapter, which is taking place in the old city of Jerusalem, I'm actually taking the viewers to the narrow allies and bazaars of the old city of Jerusalem, and I'm taking them to the rooftops of the old city of Jerusalem to share with them some episodes that basically illustrate what I said right now about how almost issues and topics that have nothing to do with the conflict be can become a ticking bomb. I give some examples in that chapter, based upon my years in the position, and I'm describing the issue, and sometimes, believe me, it's, it's sometimes even almost absurd uh, when you look at it, and how, how I was able to apply strategies to neutralize that ticking bomb. In that, the opening part of that chapter, in the old city, uh, as you show, as you say before, and, and you, 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 you share with the listeners the, uh, the introduction to that chapter, I'm saying, in my position, my problem was not the 50 or 100 places or issues that I knew that each and every one of them could ignite a huge fire. My problem was the 300 I didn't know of. And that was something that was always constantly in my mind because I have to be all the time tuned to understand what could be the most trivial issues that could be 
drawn into the conflict and ignite a huge fire. So this is one chapter of the of the um, of the series that that deals with the issue of like how issues are recruited and could become flammable and ignite fire. And then there is another chapter which is is very interesting. We deal with the story of the Temple Mount compound, which is obviously one of the known place, uh, well places in the world. In that chapter, what I'm doing is, in one level, I'm presenting the narratives, the major narratives of Jews and, and Muslims, mostly, and Spartic Christians. I'm interviewing a, a Jewish scholar who presents the Jewish perspective. I'm interviewing a Muslim scholar who presents the Muslim perspective regarding the Temple Mount compound. But then I'm doing something. I'm taking the story of the Temple Mount compound and I'm saying, look, the story of the Temple Mount compound, heart and soul, is also very much connected to the big picture and the big story of the Middle East at large. And then we have, I'm doing an interesting interview with an expert who is an Arab, Muslim, Shiite in origin. He is, a, is, is, is an expert on the Middle East. And we have an interesting discussion where he basically talks about how the Temple Mount compound in the Middle East politics intertwine. And he provides some very interesting insights and observations that most of the people in the West totally are unaware of. And those in, uh, insights and observations are very significant because in the concluding part of that chapter, as I'm saying to the audience, if somebody wants really to understand the story of the Temple Mount compound, somebody, someone has to look at the many dimensions of the story of the Temple Mount compound, not only the Israeli-Palestinian, because the story of the Temple Mount compound is bigger and wider than the narrow perspective of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. So this is the chapter of the Temple Mount compound. Then there is another chapter which is dealing with something that was one of my major tasks during my position. You know, during the Intifada, one of the things that happened was that the whole relationship between the Israeli authorities and the Arab population of Jerusalem, those relationships collapsed. And actually what happened was that violence took over the Palestinian streets in Jerusalem, the, the Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem. The old leadership disappeared. The old Arab leadership disappeared. In the relationship again with the Arab communities, I took upon myself the task to try and to build bridges between Jewish community and Arab community. And I'm going back to two neighborhoods in Jerusalem where back then in the 90s, by the way, two of the most volatile places in Jerusalem where people were killed during those years of violence in Jerusalem. And particularly in that neighborhood back then in the 90s, I decided that I want to do something proactively to try to create a better environment for the people, both Jews and Arabs. And I initiated and I was leading a, a, a very delicate process of intercommunity between communities dialogue. So I was finding leaders from both communities, the Arab community and the Jewish community, and I was able to bring those leaders together to the table for a, a very confidential dialogue. But it was what I called a pragmatic dialogue, meaning the purpose of that dialogue was, was not only that people that are coming from both sides of the fence will have coffee, but the major purpose of the dialogue was that each of the communities could find, could be assisted by something that the other community can help in order to achieve obje objectives. And in fact, what happened was that 
that process was very positive because both leaders of the two communities were able to detect each one what can be, how can, or in what topics can it be helpful to the other community. So the Arab community was basically assisted by the Jewish community to act for them as lobbying in the municipality. The Jewish community was able to be assisted by the Arab communities who basically spoke out against the violence against uh, Jewish neighborhoods. So it was kind of like a mutual interesting point of touch. Not something so dramatic in the sense of like, oh, the media headlines or whatever. Not at all. But it was basically very significant because it proved that even in times of conflict, you can find bridges. When you can, in places where you build fences, you can also build bridges. And, and actually, just to conclude the whole story of the series, what I'm basically trying to convey in the series is yet another level. And the other level that I want to convey is that, yes, that series tells the story of Jerusalem in a specific period of time, the 90s, the Intifada. That, that series is mostly based upon the story of this person, Avi Melamed, that was there. He was hands-on. He was involved. But the purpose of this story, the series, is in the end of the day to basically offer people what I think is my major observation, and that is that the angles that they are exposed to during the series, the strategies that I applied to neutralize ticking bombs, the strategies that I applied to build relationship between conflicting communities, the strategies that I applied in order to build trust with another community that there is a lot of ancient tensions and animosity. All those strategies, all the insights that I provide, all the experience that I bring to the story, to the table, they are not confined to one place and one time. They are actually a transcending time and they are transcending places in the sense that they could be applicable in any place on this planet. And they could be applicable in any place in the planet in any time where you have communities that are struggling and there is a tension between the communities. Indeed, when I was in May, when we launched the, formally the, the series and I was screening the series in some meetings, in, in the States, that message was clearly very powerful to people because they say, well, if, if you were able to do that in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which is one of the most, if not the most sensitive, yes. if you are really able to do that, it means that it really can be done anywhere, anytime. And, and I think it's a very, we find it, and people that watch it, found it to be a very encouraging message. Yeah, very powerful indeed. Now, the last episode is the one that I'm uh, most familiar with at the moment because I just watched it. You exposed the fact that the mayor or the uh, the council, whatever you call it in uh, in Jerusalem, that uh, runs the city these days is not as empathetic to the uh, Arabic communities as they were in, in the past. Uh, there's a, a falling out or uh, a lack of proper muscle in terms of dealing with the issues going on with the uh, the wider communities in, in Jerusalem. What's Is there a failing these days in dealing with the issues that were dealt with uh, more effectively in the past? 
Well, David, to be honest with you, I don't really know to say exactly the, what's the nature of the relationship today with the current municipal administration and the Arab neighborhoods. One of the people in the series, one of the leaders, Arab leader from one of the Arab neighborhoods that was interviewed was very forthcoming and he had a lot of complaints against the current administration. I think that there are some topics that have basically all the time they are there, like for the issue, for example, the issue of uh, housing permits which was always something that was very sensitive issue when it comes to the story of uh, Arab communities in Jerusalem. This issue of uh, services and equal of services, one of the people that I'm interview, very interesting person in the, in the series is this Arab, Jerusalemite Arab, who actually for the first time ever was running for position in the municipality elections. That was some kind of like an unprecedented event when a Jerusalemite Arab established the least a political party and ran for elections because Jerusalemite Arabs traditionally refused to participate in the elections because they don't they refuse to recognize Israel's sovereignty over the city and indeed he said when he did that he was receiving threats just the same he said he ran but he, he failed in the series when I'm interviewing this guy uh, we, we talk about the reasons for the failure I leave it for the viewers to to hear what he said but I think that one of the things that he was basically clearly saying, he was saying, look, we, Jerusalemite Arabs, we are being deprived or we are being discriminated against in terms of the services, which is not something new. It's always have been there. I don't know to say today, for example, again, to what extent that perspective is an outcome of the lack of addressing the challenges by the municipality or to what extent does it reflect an subjective sentiment of Jerusalemite Arabs, while basically the reality may be different. But what I can tell you is something very interesting. When I was doing the series and we traveled around, in particularly and in, uh, including, of course, in some of the Arab neighborhoods in Jerusalem, I noticed there has been a lot of development in large, uh, in large scale, meaning building, infrastructure, transportation. You could see the difference. But once again, Reminding you, when I was back in my position in the 90s, Arab neighborhoods of Jerusalem were, were a very gloomy place to be in, uh, in many different aspects, not only in context of like the security challenges. And today, definitely, when you go there, you see the differences on the one hand. But it's, I, I would say that I believe that some of the core challenges are still there. And one of the issues that is kind of like an open question which I deal with one other guest that I have in an interview, is the question whether this line of the non-willingness of Arab Jerusalem to participate in the elections, whether this line that now has been crossed, are we going to, in, to see in the future a larger participation of Arab Jerusalemite in, in elections to the municipality? The person that I interview, which is a very interesting person, has a similar background like myself in many ways, uh, has an interesting answer on that. And I leave it as an open answer for the viewers to watch the series. Uh, but this is definitely one of the major significant questions regarding the, the trajectory of Jerusalem ahead. Because reminding us, Arabs in Jerusalem are 40% of the city's population, 4-0. Um, and obviously, if Arab of Jerusalem will participate in the elections uh, in large scale, this is this is a game changer.
And so that's one of the biggest question, open question uh, that we are dealing with in, in the series as well. You're expecting to go to a Shabbat dinner tonight. So let's, um, let's finish up with uh, a question, which is obviously a key question that everybody asks when it comes to Jerusalem. And maybe uh, you can express your view on this. Uh, maybe you can be a bit partisan. Uh, what, what is your view on the future of the status of the city of Jerusalem? Avi, do you subscribe to the general consensus amongst Jews around the world that Jerusalem should remain an undivided city? You know, David, when I did the series, obviously in the back of my mind, I, I was aware of the political narratives and obviously one of the major political narratives and again, I'm, I'm Jew, I'm Zionist, I, I'm familiar with the perspectives, and, and I'm, I'm familiar with the narrative that basically talks about Jerusalem, non-divided, and so on and so on. The same way I'm familiar with the Palestinian and Muslim narrative regarding Jerusalem, where actually they are talking about Jerusalem, East Jerusalem should be the capital of a Palestinian state, and so, so I'm, I'm obviously very familiar with those narratives. So it was in the back of, of my mind. But answering your question, I would actually go back to the first opening chapter of the series. And in the opening chapter of the series, when I'm taking the viewer in a very graduate and, and modelized process, building layer upon layer and understanding how the city is physically structured, how the communities are physically structured, when we understand the ratio of demography, when we understand the physical dimension, when they understand the surrounding environment of Jerusalem, the immediate surrounding environment. I told you earlier, David, that we are sharing with the viewer some very interesting secret, quote-unquote, if you wish, or something really amazing to understand about Jerusalem from a geopolitical perspective. I'm not going to tell you what is that, because I hope that people will watch the series and we like to understand what is this interesting geopolitical perspective of Jerusalem. But here is something that I say in this chapter, and I'm willing to share it as a teaser in this interview regarding that. What I'm saying is, in the concluding part of chapter one is, once we reveal to the viewer the whole picture, with everything that comes at was maps, demographics, statistics, drone images, satellite images, and so on and so on. One of my observation statement is the following one. I'm saying to my viewer, you are looking at a reality that it is to a large extent irreversible. And in order to understand that statement, you have to watch the first chapter and then you understand why do I say and what's the ramifications of that statement when you ask about this trajectory of Jerusalem whether it's going to be divided or non-divided and so on and so on. I really want people to a little bit alleviate over the above the narrative, the political narrative. There are people who say Jerusalem should be united forever under Israel's rule. There are people, I'm talking about Jews, there are people who are saying no, you know, Jerusalem should be divided. Everyone comes with its own political narrative which is legitimate. But for me, the most significant thing in the series, and I don't touch at all at that issue in the series, by the way. The most significant thing for me in the series was to show the people that we are looking at a, a life, a living, breathing city of almost one million people. 
and 60% Jews, 40% Arab. And we are trying to touch not the political narrative, but we are trying to touch this, the nerves and the, and the soul and the spirit and the everyday life that the city is in the end of the day is made of. Because this is a city where people live and grow their children and go to work and go to have fun and go to shop. So for me, the purpose was definitely not to deal with the political narratives. We don't deal with that at all. For me, what was important was to show the city in the frame of the conflict, but to understand these perspectives of the conflict over the city, in the city, and understand how do they impact the life of people that live in the city. Those people happen to be Muslims or Jews. They are happen to be more to the right wing or more to the left wing. It doesn't matter. And what's important for us in the series was not the political narrative per se, but the understanding of the deep layers of the story of a city with one million people that is called Jerusalem, one of the most sensitive and amazing places on this planet, maybe the most sensitive and amazing one on this planet. We want people really to be able to watch the series and to walk away with those understandings. You know, there is no lack, David, of de debating or presenting the political narratives. That's not my job. That's not what we did the series for. And by the way, the, the feedbacks that we get from people totally prove that our approach was 100% accurate. Because people say, we were afraid, they say, that once again we are going to hear the same old story of the political narratives. And No, what, we, what they saw was a totally in-depth, multi-dimensional picture of the city of Jerusalem, very dynamic one. And particularly, particularly, people say that it was enormously, it is an enormously educating, it is enormously substantially adding knowledge and information and understanding. And going back, David, to the beginning of our conversation, uh, for which I'm very grateful, what I'm trying to do is to offer better understanding of a complex reality. I'm not trying to convince people to think that way or that way. I'm just trying really to provide people the best way possible, an intelligent understanding of a complex reality, and then people are just welcome to walk away and to take with them whatever they want to take, to draw whatever they want to draw, the insights, the conclusions. That's their job. My job is really to try and to provide them as much as possible the tools, the knowledge, the perspectives, uh, in order to be able to do that. Yes, to the information provider. In a sense, you really put your finger on the pulse when it comes to uh, what's going on in the Middle East. And, uh, of course, with Jerusalem, that's right at the, the centre of the focus of what uh, is of concern with so many of the issues that are uh, uh, confounding, perplexing us in uh, in the Middle East. Thank you very much for yes. talking to me today, Avi, and I think uh, you've produced a fantastic series and Anybody who's got any interest in uh, what's going on in the Middle East really ha has to watch it. Thank you so much, David. I really appreciate it. I would like to take the opportunity, uh, first of all, to thank you. You know, I was in Australia. I think we, that's what the first time we met. It was a couple of years ago. Oh, more um, than that. It was a, more than that. <laughs> more than, <laughs> it was a great opportunity. I do have the honor and pleasure to meet incoming uh, delegations, missions coming from Australia to Israel, which is always wonderful encounter and very significant one. And I'm very thankful for the uh, platform 
that I'm offered. I would like also to, in that context, to offer people to try and to purchase my recent, my most recent book, published in 2022. It's called Inside the Middle East: Entering a New Era. Unfortunately, or, or fortunately, I don't know how to say. I was just noticed by the publisher in New York that the book is totally sold out, but the book is available at um, Amazon, and uh, it's it's a significant book that provides a, a very interesting and I would say, as you say very correctly, finger on the pulse of the Middle East, and I do encourage people to read the book. I hope that they will benefit from that. So you've been hearing. Middle East expert Avi Malama talking about his five-part documentary series about Jerusalem called The Seam Line. At this point, I will play a short segment from a show I produced six years ago when I was also dealing with the subject of Jerusalem. With the song Jerusalem of Gold, very well-known song, was written by Naomi Shemer. It's also the unofficial national anthem of Israel, often contrasted with the official anthem Hatikva. Naomi Shemer wrote the original song for the Israeli Song Festival that had been commissioned by the Mayor Teddy Kollek, held in 1967 on 15th of May, the night after Israel's 19th Independence Day. The original song described the Jewish people's 2,000-year-long longing to return to Jerusalem. Shemer added the final verse after the Six-Day War, which happened only a month later, to celebrate Jerusalem's reunification. The version I will play is by the late Ofra Haza, who was commonly known as the Israeli Madonna, who possessed a truly golden voice, which was described as a tender mezzo-soprano. A version of the song was part of the soundtrack also of Shinza's List, orchestrated by the film composer John Williams. The song features prominently at the end of the film, with the exception of the Israeli release, when the remaining Jews leave the camp and walk over the hill in the direction of a nearby town, we don't hear this song because Israeli audiences were amused by the use of the song due to it being written over 20 years after the Holocaust and being totally unrelated to the subject of the film Schindler's List. So following this reaction, it was replaced with Hannah Senesh's song Eli Eli for Israeli showings. Hannah Senesh, who was one of 37 Jewish parachutists of Mandate Palestine parachuted by the British Army into Yugoslavia during the Second World War to assist in the rescue of Hungarian Jews about to be deported to the German death camp at Auschwitz uh, was the person that uh, was commemorated in the song. Senesh was arrested at the Hungarian border, then imprisoned and tortured, but refused to reveal details of her mission. She was eventually tried and executed by a firing squad. She is regarded as a national heroine in Israel. Let's listen to Ofra Huzza's Jerusalem of Gold. Thank you. 
Next week, I welcome back Dr. Izzat Abdul Hadi to the Israel Connection. Dr. Izzat Abdul Hadi is the official Palestinian representative to Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific. The main reason I have invited him back was to discuss his article that was published in the Canberra Times titled, Anthony Albanese has chance to stand up for Palestine and change history. Listeners can read the full text of his article on the website of the General Delegation of Palestine to Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific, and I will share a link to it on my Facebook page. Here is a short excerpt from the interview with Dr. Abdul Hadi that I'll play in full on next week's show. And we've heard a number of the arguments that have been um, bantered around now for uh, quite some time. Just going into the article, some of the points that you've made there specifically, uh, I want to draw your attention to a newly de- declassified response to the Clinton proposal that came out under uh, Prime Minister Ehud Barak that showed mm-hmm. um, that he was willing to accept Palestinian sovereignty on uh, much of the Temple Mount as a basis for peace talks. Now, you wrote in your article, for the last 30 years where the bilateral negotiations were being conducted or were frozen, Israel's leadership has rejected any reasonable solutions to the key final status issues of refugees, Jerusalem, security, borders and water. Russian mm-hmm. offers of backroom deals made when governments were on the verge of collapse due to Israel's internal politics, as was the case in 2001 and 2008, were always about Israeli politicians' CVs and not any lasting acknowledgement of Palestinian rights. Now, the uh, declassified response is, uh, comes from highly respected historian Benny Morris, who suggests otherwise. He wrote in, back in 2002 that the former Israeli Prime Minister Ehud Barak actually accused Yasser Arafat of being a liar who talked peace while secretly plotting the destruction of Israel. The proposals included the establishment of a demilitarised Palestinian state on some 92% of the West Bank and 100% of the Gaza Strip with some territorial compensation uh, and many other um, general uh, concessions. But Arafat said no at the end of the day. And uh, as you probably know, it's been reported that Clinton banged on the table and said, you are leading your people and the region to a catastrophe. A formal Palestinian rejection of proposals reached the Americans the next day. The summit sputtered on for a few more days more, but to all intentions, purposes, it was over. So I'm suggesting to you, Izzat, that it is Palestinian intransigence which has in fact been the principal stumbling block to a resolution to this Israeli-Palestinian dispute. And it goes further if we go to 2008. The Palestinians were given land equivalent to all of the West Bank and Gaza, the capital in East Jerusalem, control of all Muslim holy sites and a limited return of refugees with financial compensation for the rest. But uh, still, uh, it, you continue looking at this uh, uh, legally baseless right of return, not just of the refugees from the 1948 war, but of all their millions of descendants. And this is unprecedented for any other refugee population and is completely incompatible with the formula of two states for two peoples as it would mean the end of Israel as a Jewish state. So I've given a, a riposte to what you've said in your in your article. Um, I suppose um, you want a chance to uh, reply to uh, what I've just uh, been saying? Yeah, sure. Thank you for this. I mean, uh, let me clarify first that peace is vested interest of the Palestinian people. We are under occupation. We are suffering for more than 56 years and also, I mean, through the uh, Nakba 1948, 75 years, 
So peace is uh, is is uh, vested is very vested interest, vested interest of Palestinian people. So we want really to reach peace. And actually, when our own public more than sixty percent support two state solution, uh, and you know coexisting peacefully with Israel and talking about demilitarized uh, country, these are all indications of our own interest uh, in the peace. Who's who's rejecting now the two state solution? I mean. Did you hear, listen to any official supporting two-state solution until the present? Like in 2009, Mr. Netanyahu in Herzliya conference, he said that he supported the two-state solution, then reversed his own support to the two-state solution. This is a problem. For the refugees, we, our plan is very uh, clear. It has been uh, declared by President Abu Mazen, which is uh, what we, what you mentioned about uh, in, in Camp David, which is what we call symbolic return or partial return, uh, which is, I mean, uh, Yahud Barak accepted this concept, like 200, 300, whatever. We are different for us. I mean, it's implementation of right to return. For the Israelis, it's a humanitarian issue. It's uh, uh, family reunification. So uh, our plan also that all Palestinians have the right to return to the Palestinian state. We talked about compensation and we talked also who wants to stay in their own hosting country. They can stay with dual nationality. So this is our own plan. Our plan for Jerusalem is not unified eternal capital of Palestine, east and west, as now Israeli said. We said East Jerusalem is our own uh, capital or two capitals for two states or one capital for two states or international cities. So we agreed on three solutions uh, to this problem. For the occupation, I mean, the territories, it's not Judea and Samaria. So it's just calling now Judea and Samaria. Israelis is very recently, uh, like a week ago, Mr. Netanyahu said that the aspiration, aspiration for Palestinian people uh, crushed. They will not have their own independent. And this he was, this was his view for the last 20 years or more. And he said that the same Israeli law will be applied now in Tel Aviv in Ayalon Street Road in, in the West Bank. So how how then we're talking about uh, West Bank? For them, for the, the Netanyahu and the religious Zionism is that this is Judea and Samaria. It should be annexed to uh, Israel. This is, I mean, built in the ideology. It's not like sort of uh, political, only political position. And I can also talk about security, as I mentioned, you know, on position and all the thing. In Camp David, we should not just believe, even a lot of scholars now talking about that Clinton lied at that time, and we don't have any record of the uh, inside uh, bilateral talks. I think uh, when they talk about 95% of land returned back to Palestinians, this wasn't including Jerusalem, because he said that under Jerusalem, the holy, the Al-Aqsa will be the Israeli sovereignty, and uh, then we have certain arrangements, so it was very vague positions toward all the final status uh, issues. I don't think that Palestinians were responsible for that. We went there to achieve a peace, sustainable peace. We can't compromise the compromise. Already we accept the two-state solution, which is 22% only for Palestinian people, 6,000 kilometers square. Israel is 78% of the land. This is the, the deal. So tune in next week to hear the full interview with Dr. Abdul Hadi, who is the Palestinian representative to Australia, New Zealand and the Pacific. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.